0: Good morning, my friends. Um, I'm thankful to be with you, and I invite you to be gathered as Christ Church around the Word of God. And we're not going to be actually in Matthew this morning. We've been in Matthew for, oh, gosh, since before Advent. Right, at, right as Advent kind of started, we started Matthew. Instead, we're going to take a break from Matthew for one day, and uh, we're going to be talking about. Since we are voting on elders today uh, in our congregational meeting following the service, it's my intention to spend some time teaching on a biblical description of elders. And I do this for three reasons. I first do it for the church, so that as you are making decisions today about who you will elect to the office of elder, you will have in your mind uh, what an elder should look like according to the Word of God. I think that will be quite helpful. Second, I teach on our new uh, on elders for the sake of our newcomers and for our visitors at Lakeside, so that you will know why we have these elections uh, and hold you know these meetings. Is, is this politics? Are these popularity contests? Why do this? I hope to show you today by the Word of God. And thirdly, let me say this: I teach on elders for the sake of us elders. As a fellow elder, I, I preach to us that we might remember the call of Christ upon our lives. Um, so let's, let's get into it, shall we? In every church, no matter what church you go to, just by nature, there has to be some sort of leadership structure. There's some way in which decisions get made, a way that people get taken care of, um, and, and that all the needs of everyone get met. And historically, in a church, you're going to organize yourself into one of three different leadership structures. Either you're going to come out as a church and you're going to be Presbyterian, or you're going to be Congregationalists, or you're going to be Episcopalian. Now, as I use those words, I'm not talking about denominations, right? Uh, the word Presbyterian can, can describe a denomination, but it can also describe a form of government. The word Episcopalian can talk about a denomination, but it was first Uh, used to talk about an order of government. I'm talking about these three names as descriptors for how churches organize themselves into leadership. And, And let me try to make this make sense. If you are a, if your church is a Congregationalist church, what you are saying is that the congregation makes the decisions in the church. And oftentimes what people are most familiar with are Baptist churches which are Congregationalist, Right? And so in a Congregationalist church, the whole church works together to make decisions. And I, like, I don't know about you, are you a fan of group work? Um, have you ever tried to make a decision with 500 people in the room together? It, it can be hard, right? And, and so either what you're doing is either you're having a, a lot of church meetings or, as is often the case, bigger churches that are Congregationalists, they end up hiring a pastor, and they, even though they're Congregationalists, they end up trusting him to make most of the decisions on their behalf. You know, maybe they have a meeting, they're Congregationalists, but they only have a meeting once a year, and the congregation ends up voting on the budget, or maybe if they're going to build a building, then the, the congregation votes, or if the worst case scenario, and this for me, is if the pastor gets out of line, maybe the congregation comes together to vote to remove that sorry guy. But that's normally how a a Congregationalist church works. Another structure in leadership is called the Episcopalian kind of leadership structure. And in an Episcopalian leadership structure, you have a a real top-down kind of leadership. You have bishops who oversee uh, several different churches. And, And so, like, if you guys are familiar with a Methodist church... You're familiar with an Episcopalian style of leadership. In the Methodist church they have kind of like leaders that oversee a, a bunch of different churches in an area, and maybe they move pastors around to different churches as they see fit. They're kind of trying to steward all the churches together at the same time. And, and they make decisions for the good of, of multiple churches. Um, and, and a third leadership style is Presbyterianism, Right? And, and I'll make it easy if I can. You, many of you have heard me talk about this before, but um, the word presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian, is the Greek word for elder, right? So, in a church that has a Presbyterian form of government like us, our church is ruled by elders, which, which is not to say that elders are the head of the church, because we believe very much that Christ is the head of the church, but that elders rule as His stewards, Right? Now, you're not going to be shocked to hear this, I really believe this, but for a lot of reasons, I think that elder-led churches are are under the best form of government. I I really, really believe that, and here's why. It creates an amazing structure of wisdom and accountability. It reduces the authority of a single pastor, but more than all of that, I believe that, that elder leadership is biblical and it's wise. And we see it all through the pages of Scripture. We see the description of elders in the church as far back as Exodus 3.16. I think we have that. We just read this together. And, and look what God tells Moses as far back as the burning bush, Right? He tells, he tells Moses of the burning bush, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So so right back, as far as the burning bush, Moses is, is, is sent to speak to the elders and, and the people of God have, have always had some sort of elder leadership. Now we throw around the term elder leadership in a secular way, we teach our kids to respect their elders, and we might refer to a uh, older statesman as being elderly, but is age the the primary standard for being a biblical elder, just someone who has grown old well well, of course not it's more than that that being said, like it is not on the same hand, or on the other hand a coincidence that that most elders have some gray hair or a white beard. <laughs> There's a certain wisdom that comes from age, um, right? Uh, but, but what are those specific characteristics which the Bible says that elders are to have? I want to discover them together with you today. We're going to read from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and discover the biblical standards for eldership. I want to invite you to stand now if you are able. Before we read God's word together, let's pause uh, for a word of prayer. Father, you are sovereign, you are good. You reveal yourself to us by your word. And as your church, which is gathered around your word this morning, Father, we pray that your spirit would do its work in our heart, that we would understand your word, that we would be led by your spirit to be obedient to those standards as we cast our votes this morning. And whatever the outcome, we trust in you uh, and, and your righteous will for our lives. And all the church said, Amen. Let's read together, um, beginning in the first verse. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober minded. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Here is the context of what we just read. Paul's writing uh, to Timothy in this letter. Timothy is in the town of Ephesus. Timothy is providing leadership at a little church there which, which Paul had actually planted and pastored in Ephesus for three years. And, and Paul loved that little church in Ephesus, but Paul had, as he often did, he, he, he plants a church, he loves it, he, he gets it going, then he moves on, and he, he takes the gospel to other places and eventually... Paul was thrown into prison. And shortly after Paul's released from prison, he goes back to Ephesus. He, he goes back to check on the church in Ephesus there. And he finds that that little church that he planted in Ephesus is having some leadership issues. Have you ever seen a church with, a, with leadership issues? Um, we laugh because we, you know, if you've been in this church long enough or if you've been in any church long enough, you, you know how hard it is to, to do leadership in churches. I'm sure we all have. The newspaper is full of Christian leaders who are poor shepherds who have had moral failures. And so we, we see leadership issues. Um, we read about someone who's had an affair or, or someone who's greedy for money who, or, or some leader who's abused some sense of power. But in Ephesus, in this little church, what you need to know is that in the church in Ephesus, they had some bad leaders. And Paul recognizes this, but, but, but he still can't stay. And, and so, Paul leaves Timothy behind in his stead to kind of shepherd the church. Uh, and although Paul can't stay, he writes to Timothy. Paul is going to give Timothy advice uh, through the Holy Spirit on the standards of Christian leadership in the church. So, let's take a look at this together today. First, Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3.1, this is what it says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul's describing uh, the desire in someone's heart to be an overseer. And that word, you may go, it doesn't say elder there, Tyson. It says overseer. I want you to know that, that those terms, overseer, shepherd, and elder, they're almost interchangeable in the early church, for for kind of for our intents and purposes, for what an elder is, sometimes they're called uh, overseers, sometimes they're called shepherds, sometimes they're called elders. Uh, but Paul is, is clearly talking about elders. Elders oversee the church. Elders shepherd the church. So that's a really interesting way to look at it. And Paul says that if anyone aspires to this office of elder or overseer, that it's a good thing. It's a good thing to aspire to this because it is a noble task. And so there is a logic that the first part of being called. To be an elder, like the first thing you should ask somebody, or they should they should know within their own heart, is, do I actually want to be an elder? And, and like if if you don't want to be an elder, that's fine, but but don't be, right? It, and it might seem trivial, but you need to know that being an elder is is not an easy an easy office. It's actually not always fun. If you're an elder, you're going to be. Critiqued by others, you're gonna be, you're gonna do more than your fair share of the work. You're gonna be held to a higher standard, and some folks aren't built for it, and some folks won't want to. But for those who want to, they can know that this is an aspiration to a noble task. It's not a bad thing for someone to say, "I really want to be an elder." Like, it's a good thing. Paul wrote in his um, uh, wrote wrote this letter to Timothy. He knew the eldership was hard and that a man needed to be sure of his own calling before we consider to make him an elder. We, listen, you should not elect a man to be an elder who is wishy-washy about their own calling to be an elder. They need to be able to look at us and say, I desire this, I, and that desire is a noble thing. And the, the, the Spirit, I believe, makes elders want to be elders. That's the first test of the elder. We'll call it the self-test. Do I have a desire to give of myself in order to shepherd Christ's church. If you say no, don't do it. But there's a second test. A second test to determine if God is calling you to be an elder. uh, And that is the counsel of the church. It would be kind of silly to say anyone who feels like they should be an elder, come up here real quick and we're going to lay our hands on you and we're going to make you an, an elder. Like that would be that would be dangerous, actually. It would be disastrous. Why would it be disastrous? Because you would most certainly end up with people who want to be an elder for all kinds of weird reasons, right? They, they want to make decisions. They want, they want to control the church. They like the prestige. I mean, you would have a lot of people like that. Or, or maybe the problem wouldn't even be their motivations. Maybe they, they love Jesus and they want to serve But they just don't have the attributes of a biblical elder. They don't know the Word of God. They're not wise. They're not shepherds. We must make sure our leaders are called. The Spirit must move in them to desire the office. That's test number one. Test number two is to ask, does this person have the attributes of an elder? And we find these attributes in the Word of God, primarily in two places, right? And, and we passed the letter out over the, the last few weeks including these, these attributes. And they include texts from Titus and include Paul's letter to Timothy. And both Titus and Timothy, in both of those letters, Paul is helping to establish leadership in a local church. Okay, He's writing to people to help them establish standards for leadership in a local church. The instructions that Paul gives to both Timothy and Titus, are about the standards for elders. And in both places, they're very, very similar. And I encourage you to compare them. But today, we're going to focus on Timothy. Follow our logic. Paul starts by saying, aspiring to the office of overseer is a good thing. But then Paul gives the standards by which the church uses to identify whether or not someone should be an elder. Look at verse 2. We'll talk about these together. Therefore, An overseer must be above reproach. What does it mean? Think about this. What does it mean to be above reproach? And some translations translate that to say blameless, right? It's not that elders have no sin. I mean, of course they do. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's really about the idea that elders should have no glaring and obvious unrepentant sin that that we could point to that disqualify them. Elders should be beyond accusation. There's nothing really glaring to accuse them of. You can't easily point to them and see just a great moral defect or an obvious sin. You could actually say that everything else that kind of follows after this in this section of Scripture is somewhat describing what it might mean to be above reproach. Right? So first it's it's, be above reproach and then it gives a lot of details that could be applied to what it means to be above reproach. And here's what I mean. If you look back at verse 2 again, and we'll just read a little bit further, it says this, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. One way an elder is above reproach is that he is the husband of one wife. It's always an interesting question to talk about what Paul meant when he said that an elder is to be a husband of one wife. Is it possible that Paul is talking about polygamy? multiple wives? Is is Paul talking about divorce and remarriage? What about single men? Are are single men not uh, eligible to be an an elder because they're not the husband of one wife? Well, the bottom line is this. I, I think we can, at least the baseline, say this. Paul wants a man living by the Word of God. He's describing a man who is obedient to God in his sexuality. And I want want you to remember that that Paul is a single man. Paul's not married. He's single. And yet Paul, in the Word of God, he he describes himself as as being a fellow elder. And so we can get right away that he can't be talking about single men if if, if he says that the the, the standard for eldership is a man of one wife, and yet he himself calls himself an elder. Right? We we, we got that? Um, It is possible, very possible, for a single man to live a life that is above reproach. I think a simple understanding of a man of one wife is to be understood as a man who loves his wife well. He's devoted to her alone and no other women. He's not lusting after other women. He's not fooling around on the side. He's not caught up in pornography. He's a one woman man. And if he's a single man, he's not lost in sexual immorality. Look again at verse 2. Paul says an elder should be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. Look at those those characteristics again. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. These words paint a picture of a mature man. He's wise. He's he's under control of his emotions and himself. He's not a hothead. This is part of what it means to be above reproach. An elder does not lose his temper quickly or easily. He does not make a clown of himself in public. He is generally respected in the community. Paul also says an elder should be hospitable. And there's a lot of ways to take that, but but we should understand that, that elders know how to treat people kindly. And and generously. Now now look at the last attribute listed in verse two. Put it back out there again. An an elder is able to teach. I, I don't know if you knew that this was a this was a biblical attribute of an elder. An elder should be able to teach, and they should be willing to teach. Are we talking about calculus? Are we talking about chemistry? Are we talking about history? Of course not. What are we talking about? We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the word of God. Elders should be able to handle God's word. If you're an elder who cannot teach or you will not teach for that matter, you are lacking in the biblical standards for eldership. Now, some offices of elder require more teaching such as a teaching elder or pastor like myself or Jim, but every elder should be able and willing to teach. Otherwise, they're lacking the, the, the biblical standard for eldership. Elders should not simply be decision makers, right? Elders are to be shepherds. Some people think that, that it's like, like the pastor shepherds and the elders rule. I mean, that's, that's horrible polity. And it's not what Scripture says. The elders are to teach and shepherd. The elders... Need to be able to feed the sheep by the Word of God. And the problem is, it happens over and over again, in a lot of churches, they have these bylaws. And the bylaws say that every year you have to elect four elders. And so you go out and you look for four elders. And they do so because the bylaws say so. And they, pour, they put four men into the office that don't have the attributes of an elder. They find four men that they put in there who are not above reproach, who are not shepherds, who do not teach God's word. And churches ended up with elders who don't teach, and that church, that flock, has no one to feed them. So, what happens when a church does not have shepherds to feed the flock? The people become malnourished and they starve for lack of the word. And here's the truth. You cannot teach what you do not know. You understand that? Like like an elder cannot teach what an elder does not know. So therefore, elders need to be the kind of men who love the Word of God. They need to be the kind of men who crack their Bibles open at the breakfast table and feed their souls uh, by the Scripture. And, And therefore, because they do this in their life in private, they have the capacity to feed the sheep. Verse 3, elders are to not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. These are things that trip men up. We all have that friend who's a drunkard. He goes too hard at every social event and he ends up slurring his words and then we in our community have to end up worrying about taking his keys. If a man regularly finds himself struggling with drunkardness, he's probably not seated or suited to be above reproach Paul continues in verse 3 saying an elder is not violent but gentle he's not quarrelsome and you know what does quarrelsome mean it means that they're always upset they're always in a conflict they're always offended there's someone who's easily agitated easily offended and the rest of us have to walk around on eggshells because of them that person is not a good elder And in in the end, a person who's always conflicted like that, always uh, quarrelsome, will do harm to the church. And still there in verse 3, Paul says an elder should not be a lover of money. And uh, we don't need a lot of explanation here other than to say elders are probably generous in their giving. I believe you can have a rich elder, I believe you can have a poor elder, as long as they steward well what God has given them. Uh, The next idea, however, is very interesting. We find it in verses 4 and 5. Read with me. An overseer must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The principle here seems to be pretty clear. If you're looking for a man to put in charge of the church to steward your church family... A pretty good place for you to tell whether he's going to be able to do that is to look at how he is managing his own family. You can, look, you can look at his family and see if there is dignity in the way in which he fathers. Do his kids respect his authority? Does his family come and do they come to worship together? Is he leading his family in faith? If so, that's that's probably, I mean, we could probably all take that and say that's a pretty good indicator that he will lead our church family well, right? Look at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The elder should probably be someone who has walked with the Lord for a long while, right? Like we have a standard here at Lakeside that's just the one that we thought was wise, that you have to become a member of our church for two years before you can run for the office of deacon, and that you have to be in the church for at least five years before you can run for the office of elder. But even then, I I think that's more about how long you've been around here. You know, like uh, elders, if possible, I think, should be men who have walked decades with the Lord. You want that guy that's battle-tested you want the kind of shepherd who knows where to find water in dry lands, who can, who can sense where the wolves are and has the experience of, of mending the wounded. Our last verse of this, section, of this section comes in verse 7. Look at it with me. It says this, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And here, here's what I think this verse is getting at. If we elect an elder at Lakeside, we are, we are saying in a sense as the church that the guy that we are electing is above reproach because that's the standard. And so we're kind of putting our, our, our approval on him. And if that guy goes back into his business world, back into the secular world, and that guy is a total jerk at work. He treats his employees horrible. He cheats on his taxes and his employees know it and they see it. Those employees are going to say, man, isn't he an elder over at Lakeside, and he's still a cheat and a liar? I guess all Christians are cheats and liars. I guess that's what the church of Jesus Christ is about. The elder, if that happens, has then disgraced the office. They've disgraced the church. They've disgraced the name of Jesus. The text says, elders must be well thought of by outsiders so that they will not fall into disgrace. So, after hearing all the standards for an elder found in 1 Timothy 3, like, I I honestly wouldn't be surprised if some of our candidates who were on the ballot today struggled with thinking, uh, man, am I up to this call? Am I I qualified to be an elder? You can look back at at the pages of Scripture and you can find people who struggled with God's call upon their lives. It's just over and over Moses didn't think he was qualified or the right man for the job. Gideon didn't think he had the pedigree for the job. Uh, There's two tests. In your heart, do you desire the office? That's a noble thing. If you desire to serve. And the second test is, does the congregation see those things in you? And here's where we end today. I want to say this. If you are, are currently a fellow elder with me, I charge you to reevaluate your office by by the biblical standards we read today. Are you taking your calling and your ordination seriously? Are you shepherding the flock? Do you feed them by the word of God? Are you living above reproach? Do you behave in a self-controlled manner? Are you gentle and not quarrelsome? Are you managing your own household well? If you're on the ballot today, I hope the Word of God gave you a sense of the weight of the office of elder. This is no trivial thing. Do you feel called to do this because the Lord equips the called and he doesn't always call the equipped. And if you're a church member, I hope you feel better equipped to cast your vote for elder this morning. I want to say that you can vote up to four times. I, will, I hope that you take a moment this morning to read through uh, the bios for everyone who's on the ballot uh, and to vote for who you feel are best equipped to shepherd the flock. We have read together today from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we come to you today and thank you for uh, the truths of your holy word We as your church want to be obedient to those teachings. We pray today for the candidates who are on the ballot, God, that you would steal their heart and give them a peace, come what may. We pray for those who vote, that they would do so with wisdom. We pray that our entire process would bring glory to God. We ultimately pray that the elders in this church would rightly shepherd the flock and manage the household of God with dignity. We pray this in the name of God and all God's people said, Amen.